How are we doing this morning? Good. I would expect a little bit more energy after that thrashing that the Gators gave Vanderbilt yesterday, but there we go. So, someone's excited about the Gators. There we go. Well, I'm glad to be back with you guys this morning. Uh, last week, I was in Virginia. Uh, one of my high school buddies finally convinced some lady to say yes to him and marry him, and so uh, I was up there celebrating with him. Uh, had a had a wonderful time. Um, uh, reconnecting with some old friends, and uh, also got the chance to visit a church plant in my hometown that um, is doing some pretty awesome things for Jesus, and so uh, enjoyed worshiping with them, but definitely missed you guys uh, last week. And so um, this morning, we have a lot of scripture to cover, uh, and so I'm going to dive right in. Um, if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open it up to Acts chapter 6. Um, if this is your first time with us or you've been with us a couple weeks but have not received a scripture journal yet, uh, just raise your hand. We would love to give one of those to you. That's our free gift to you. Uh, we've been giving these out this entire semester as we've been studying the book of Acts. So if you need one, just raise your hand and we'll have somebody bring one to you. And the reason we're giving those out is because uh, one of our values here at Aletheia Church is that we actually value the word of God and we believe that if you have the word of God in your hand, God will use it. We want to engage you with God's word. We want to encourage you in God's word. We want to equip you with God's word, and we want to see you empowered with God's word to make much of Jesus uh, in your school, in your classroom, in your workplace, uh, in your neighborhood, with your family. Uh, and, and when we believe that God's word will empower us to do that. And so um, it, we also believe that if uh, we are encouraging one another, if we are equipping one another, uh, if we are empowering one another, that we will make much of Jesus, which is the whole reason why we exist in the first place. I said all the way back in our first uh, sermon as we started the book of Acts that, that the thesis of the book of Acts is that uh, Jesus gives this command to his disciples before he ascends into heaven at the right hand of the Father that, that we will be his witnesses when the Holy Spirit has come upon us in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so that is exactly what the early church was doing is they were living out the implications of Acts chapter 1 verse 8. Uh, seeking to fulfill that mission and make much of Jesus as they planted his church. And that's why we've entitled this series in the book of Acts, Go and Tell, because that's exactly what Jesus tells us to do. He says, go and tell everyone you come in contact with the good news of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And what we've seen as we've been studying this book together is that the Holy Spirit empowers us for ministry if we are in Christ that we are empowered and indwelt by his spirit to witness to the glory of God to everyone we come in contact with, to witness, to trust the scriptures, to be bold, to preach, to serve, to do true ministry. We've seen these different themes week after week after week, but they've all been centered around that one central theme and idea of witnessing to the power and glory of Jesus Christ. And so this is what we're going to see this morning. This is what Stephen is going to show us in uh, this story that we're going to see uh, play out in the end of Acts chapter 6 and all of Acts chapter 7. And what we're going to see is that, that we can follow Jesus, we can serve others, we can preach the gospel, 
we can make much of Jesus, and that might not bring us fame and notoriety, which we often seek, but it may even, like in Stephen's case, lead to extreme persecution and death. And yet we can see in the midst of that, in Stephen, a number of things that deeply motivated him to be courageous, even in the midst of persecution and opposition. So I'm not going to read Acts chapter 6 for you guys again because uh, Charlotte did a great job of doing that. So, But I just want to unpack and understand uh, so that you understand what is going on there. So there at the end of, of Acts chapter 6, verses 8 through 15, uh, we're, we're represented with this guy named Stephen. And, and Stephen, uh, as, as I've tried to make clear, and as Pastor Daniel and Theo and some of the other people that have preached throughout the course of this semester, uh, St- Stephen uh, is, is one of the leaders in the church. He's, he's a deacon. Uh, he, you know, he's shepherding and pastoring the church, but there's nothing really super uh, special about him. And that's one of the things we've been trying to get across to you guys is the people we're seeing that we oftentimes would consider heroes in the book of Acts really are just fairly normal men and women who are just doing things with the indwelling Holy Spirit inside of them, working out the implications of the gospel. And so, uh, you know, I, as we tend to have these, these feelings of inadequacy when we look at people in Scripture and some of the bold things they do— we need to kind of hit a reset and be reminded, hey, Stephen, there wasn't anything super uh, special about him. There wasn't anything super extraordinary about him. Uh, like, like, for example, right, it, when, when we read the scripture, we're like, man, this guy lays down his life. That's what we're going to see. We're so, I, I can't ever do anything like that. He, someone that you cannot relate with, right? Steph Curry, okay? Like the greatest three-point shooter I've ever seen. And some of you guys, you didn't see some of the really, really good three-point shooters like Ray Allen and Reggie Miller or whatever else. Like, I, I'm old enough to have seen a lot of these guys, right, shoot. Right, Steph Curry does things that I, like, his shot even looks weird, right? And yet, his release is so quick, and he just, like, he's like, I think I'm going to shoot this from half court. Yep, later. Right, and just walks away. Right? There is somebody that you cannot relate with. That takes a level of natural talent and ability. No matter how many times you and I practice shooting three-pointers, we're probably not going to be able to do something like that. Stephen, though, when we hear about like, his natural talents, his abilities, the things that God has designed him for, we hear he's a deacon. Right? That's, that's his special role in the church. And do you know what deacons were? Servants. That's literally what their job was. They were, they were like, hey, everyone in the church and the kingdom of God serves, and these guys, they just lead because they do it the best. So it was like, it'd be like if there was a job for who could clean the toilets the best and who could lay out food and organize things the best. That's the type of stuff that Stephen was, was good at. But you know what Stephen did? He loved Jesus. He loved Jesus dearly. And because of his love for Jesus, we're going to see in him a great courage in the midst of extreme persecution. And so as Stephen is is serving and doing ministry, as they said there in verse 8, Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. What immediately comes after that is opposition from various groups of people. You've got the freedmen, you've got the Cyrenians, the Alexandrians, the Cilicians, and the Asians, and they all are seeking to dispute with him because they didn't like his ministry. 
And as they dispute, look at what happens. He says says there that they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Right? So you have these extremely intelligent synagogue leaders, uh, religious leaders, opposing the work that Stephen is seeking to do, right? As he's feeding the homeless, as he's helping the poor and orphaned and widows, as he seeks to do all these various things, right? You have these, group, these various groups standing up to them saying, hey, we don't like what you're doing, we want you to stop. And as he's doing these things, they come at him, and, they, and it says that they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. And, and we're going to notice in his, in his rebuttal to them in Acts chapter 7 that there's nothing really all that special about his ability. But, but their response continues to be as he pushes back on them, more and more opposition. And so these, these, these opposers, right, oftentimes in Scripture, right, we would probably call these guys wolves, right? They come in, they look like they, they're followers of God, they're people that love God or they claim to love God, but really what they're seeking to do is devour and create a disruption and destroy the work of the gospel in the hearts and lives of these men and women, And as they seize him, they bring false witness about him. And I want you to notice something that they try to do. Notice how it says earlier as they they, uh, challenged him that they were unable to deal with the wisdom that he was sharing. So one of the things I want you to notice is if you're you're here this morning, you're like, I'm a follower of Jesus. I've been following along our study in the book of Acts. One of the things we've been talking about is this idea of going and telling and making much of Jesus. What is that going to look like for me? Oh, well, Pastor Kevin, Pastor Daniel, Pastor Theo, different people have been saying over the course of the last couple months that I can expect opposition and and to not always be liked, but that I can power through because I'm empowered by the Holy Spirit to do these things. As we're thinking through this, one of the things, one of the big key things I want you to see this morning is as you grow and as you are empowered to live out gospel witness in your life, right, here is what you're going to see. As people are unable to stand against the truth of the gospel, what they'll start doing instead is having one goal, and that's discrediting the ministry that that Stephen is doing by discrediting Stephen himself. Right? Notice how they, they don't start in on like why Jesus couldn't be the Messiah. They don't argue about whether Jesus really rose from the dead or not. Uh, they don't argue scripture with him. What do they do? They're like, hey, we know this guy, Stephen. We see these things about him. Um, we see that he's doing ministry and making much of Jesus. But the reality is, is this. He's a liar, We know he's a liar, and he's creating all these different problems. And so they immediately attack the character of Stephen, right? And I think a a consistent theme I see in, in young and old believers alike is when we tend to shrink back, right, from our beliefs and our love for God when we're brought in a situation where we're being opposed, one of the primary things that happens is someone starts trying to discredit or call our character into question or call our intelligence into question, but they don't attack the gospel, they attack us. 
But what we need to understand is that whenever this is happening, right, whenever, if you're, if you're in a class, right, like I remember when I was in college, right, I, I used to go to this thing called the Free Thinker Society, which was kind of funny because no one in there was really a free thinker. They participated in groupthink themselves. It just wasn't religious groupthink. And so they kind of had their own thing going. But what was interesting is this, it, I got into relationships with some of the guys in that group. And as we would talk, right, the, the more I was able to answer their objections, and reasonably hear what they were talking about, the madder they would get. And the more mad they would get, the more they would start coming after me instead. Well, you're a Christian, but you're doing X, Y, Z. And it's like, well, yeah. Right? Because the reality is this. If, if the gospel is unable to be discredited, which over the course of the last 2,000 years, guess what, guys? It stood the test of time. Right? What's going to happen then is that those that seek to disrupt and create issues are going to instead do something else, which is attack your character. But what you need to understand is that while they're trying to discredit your character and tear you down, what they're still opposed to is the gospel. Right? Throw 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22 through 24 at me. Here, here's what you need to understand. Is if you're here this morning, like, I want to I go and tell. I want to be a witness. I want to live for Jesus. Right? Here's what you need to understand from the outset. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Is everybody tracking what Paul is saying there. He's saying for Jews, right, the cross of Christ itself is a stumbling block that they struggle to believe in and that Gentiles think it's crazy. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Right, this, this is what we're dealing with. That by by believing in Jesus and trusting in Jesus, the vast majority of those that you will come in contact with are opposed to the very idea of the gospel because, guys, guess what? The gospel is offensive. Like, like I get, like, I, over the years I've heard, like, so many different things, like, here's what the church does wrong, here's what people do wrong, Christians are screwing everything up, if Christians were just better at what they did, more people would love Jesus. I, I, I don't know if that's true or not. The gospel starts off by telling you and I that we are deceptively and deceitfully wicked to our very core, and that there is nothing we can do to rescue ourselves. If you were going to start a religion where you wanted to control people, I would advise you not to start with telling everybody that they suck. And yet that's exactly what God does in Scripture. Right? We open it up and God's like, y'all suck. Every one of you. And you guys can look around, he's telling me I suck. It's okay, look to your left, look to your right, that person does too. And then look at me, I do as well. Right? We're all in the same boat. We have all transgressed against the glory of God and we are born into sin. And therefore, the gospel is offensive. But because it's true, right, when people set out to oppose the work of ministry, they're going to try to discredit you. And that's exactly what they seek to do with Stephen. 
And so the question we can ask ourselves is not if we will face opposition if we begin to witness properly to the glory of God. We don't need to ask whether we will face opposition, but we need to ask how will we face that opposition? How will I face those that seek to discredit me? I mean, some of you guys can relate with some of this, right? Because you probably, no one in this room has probably ever faced the level of opposition that Stephen did, or <laughs> are you going to, more than likely, unless God calls you to go to some closed, dark country where the gospel, right, is illegal. But here's the reality, like, what do you do if your one doesn't want to talk to you about God? What are, what are some of the tactics they'll use to try to get out of a conversation about God with you? What about, what about being afraid to stand for truth in your classroom or in the workplace? What about knowing you'll be opposed by your family if you start talking about your new faith in Christ? Right? One of the biggest things I remember was like after I was a new believer, the people I was most afraid to share with was my family because they knew the worst parts of me. And I knew that they would challenge me on that. And what we're going to see from Stephen in Acts chapter 7 is we're going to see three things that he, that he does that show us how we can be courageous in the midst of persecution and opposition. And so we've got a ton of scripture here. I'm going to try to highlight things, but we're going through about like 60 verses. So just hold on to your seatbelts because we're going to get moving. But as we move through this, right, three things that Stephen does, that we, can, that we can learn from and we can ask God to help us to grow in, right? The first one is this. Stephen is courageous in God's word. All right, look at verses one through eight of Acts chapter seven with me. Look at what Stephen does. And the high priest said, are these things so? And Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran, and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others, who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave them the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob. And Jacob of the, t of the 12 patriarchs. So notice how immediately, right, the high priest comes before Stephen and says, what do you have to say for yourself, basically? Are these things true about your character? And what does Stephen do? He doesn't pull out the best apologetics lesson that we could read a book on. He doesn't start uh, using human philosophy or wisdom. He doesn't start trying to even discount or discredit the false witness that's being brought against his character. What does he do? He's like, hey, we're all Jewish here. Let's talk about the Bible. Right? He runs straight to Genesis. He runs straight 
back to the word of God because he trusts God's word. Right? He says, hey, remember our father Abraham? God chose him. Right? Remember him? Remember that idol worshiper running, running around Haran with his dad? God just picked him for no other reason than that God wanted to choose him. There's nothing special about Abraham, and yet God said to our father Abraham, hey, go out from this place. I've, I've chosen you. I've, I'm going to bless the nations through you. And then I'm going to give you a son, and, and in that son, I'm going to give you the sign of circumcision, which is a reminder of the promise that I've given you. He's like, hey, rem- remember our father Abraham? And then he moves on, right? Then he's going to move into Exodus. Look at verse 9. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had brought out a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor and Shechem. And so then he says, like, hey, remember our father Abraham? God say to him, hey, remember his, his grandson and great-grandsons? Remember that, remember, remember the one, that one guy, Joseph? Remember how our, our, our fathers right, betrayed him and sold him into slavery? Remember how God used that for good? Remember how God rescued our people because they had sold their brother into slavery? And how God had showed mercy towards Joseph even though his brothers had meant to show him evil. Isn't that amazing? God used that to save our people. And then he continues on in the story of Exodus. He says, look, remember this part? But as, this, as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight, and he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in words and in deeds. Right, look at what he moves on to say, hey, God saved our people through Joseph. God saved our people through Abraham because God chose to do these things. And then look at what he says. And then as Egypt persecuted our people, God raised up another man in the midst of us to, who is going to rescue us again, this guy, Moses. Just think about what God's been doing over and over and over again. He's not defending himself. He's literally just telling them the story and the history of their people. Look at what he goes on to say. And when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptians. So Moses was a murderer. That's what he's saying. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand 
And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them, and now I will send you to Egypt. He's just just telling them this story. Egypt persecuted you. God protects Moses. Moses runs as a murderer, and then God meets him in the wilderness of Midian. And then God is going to send Moses back to Egypt to rescue God's people in the midst of persecution. Anybody else seeing this crescendo that Stephen's working towards? He's just slowly building this story. Hey, remember God's faithfulness to Abraham? Remember God's faithfulness to Isaac? Remember God's faithfulness to Jacob? Remember God's faithfulness to Joseph? Remember God's faithfulness to Moses? And remember in the midst of God's faithfulness to those men, how he was faithful to us ultimately? He's just building and building. God has been saving our people and choosing us over and over and over again. This is the same thing, Stephen's going to say, that we have been preaching to you this entire time that God was going to rescue us and he ultimately did this in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Can't you see it? Can't you see what God's been doing over and over and over again, right? When you get to verse 35, he says, this Moses whom they rejected saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both a ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai. And with our fathers, he received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us, and for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days, and they offered a sacrifice to the idol, and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship, uh, gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Raphon, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. And look at Stephen's way. He's like, hey, remember when God raised up that prophet to rescue our people? What did our people do? 
They ignored him. They rejected him. And they worshiped false idols. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all things? He's literally just gone through the entire history of Israel in the Old Testament. He started with Abraham, and he went all the way to Solomon. And he says, hey, there's two consistent themes throughout the Old Testament. God's faithfulness and man's unfaithfulness. And God in his faithfulness to con continues to raise up prophets and men who will rescue us from ourselves. Over and over and over again. And even as they reject God's chosen one, God still saves. See, Stephen knows that Scripture courageously shows us God's faithfulness. And that's why he is committed to using that even as he's staring down persecution. Right? Scripture testifies to Jesus. There's, there's this famous line right, where you cannot open up the Bible and not find Jesus in it. Everything testifies to him. And Stephen knows that. And so he says, hey, I don't care if I'm facing opposition. I don't care what you're saying about me. I don't care what you know about me. Here, here's what I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you the word of God. I'm going to give you the word of God because that's what you need. And so here's my question. Here, you can write this down or whatever. If you're, if you're a follower of Jesus here this morning, right, and you want to live courageously in the midst of opposition, how well do you know your Bible? Are you ready to give a defense for the hope that is in you? Right? Peter says in 1 Peter uh, chapter 3, verse 15, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Right, Peter says, look, if, if you're a disciple of Jesus, you should be ready to talk to anybody about Jesus, anytime, anywhere, anyplace. You should just be ready. And one of the ways you, you get ready for that is you know the Bible. Right? I, hear, I hear a lot of this, and I've heard it over the years. Right? People come to me and say, you know, you know Pastor, I, I want to share with my one, or I want to share with uh, my classmate, or I want to share with my roommate, or I want to talk about Jesus uh, with my coworker. Uh, but you know, I, I just don't know what I'm going to do with objections. Like, like how, do I answer their, how do I answer their objectives? And by the way, guys, that is an okay question to have. 
There's nothing wrong with being like, hey, I go, how, would I, how would I answer this objection? But here's, here's the primary way you can think through that problem. Are you in the word of God learning and growing, having your mind transformed by the power of God's word? And in that transformation, growing in courage because you know what God has done for you. Are you resting in Scripture? Right, as, as we've been saying here at, for the last year or so at, at Aletheia Church, right, if we're going to lead people to become growing followers of Jesus Christ, that means that we're intentional about discipleship. And part of intentional discipleship is knowing and having a plan for how you're going to fill your mind with truth. How, how am I going to fill my mind with truth when everything else around me is in opposition to that? When am I going to spend time in God's word? How am I going to memorize scripture? How am I going to learn theological truths? How am I going to be encouraged by God's word with the community around me? You got to have a plan for that stuff. You have a plan for everything else. Have a plan for how you're going to fill your mind with truth. I don't care if it's a Bible reading plan. I don't care if it's listening to scripture on audiobook, right? But you need to be transformed by the word of God. And those that have been transformed with that power are courageous to witness the way that Stephen did. Stephen wasn't some special guy who had some uh, supernatural speaking ability. No, he just knew God's word. He literally read the entire Old Testament to them. I wouldn't call that like earth-shattering knowledge. It was an open book test. As he just reads to them, here's what happened, and here's what happened next, and here's what happens next. Now, not only does Stephen display courage because of his trust in the word of God, and he finds his courage there, but I want you to notice something else about him as well. As he as he derives this courage from God's word, there's a second thing that we see as he shares that narrative with them, as he's courageous in his identity in Christ. And here's how I know that. This, this one's a little bit harder to see, but I want you to think about this. Right? Think about the stories he shared and the way he talks about each individual character of the Old Testament. Here's the, here's the framework that he sets up. Jesus is better than every one of those heroes that God brought along. Right, think about the first one, right? Abraham. The promise of Abraham's family ultimately points to who? Jesus. Right, if you know anything about Abraham's account, right, right, God's promise to Abraham is that he will have a son, and in that line, right, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Well, who does that find its fulfillment in? Jesus. Right, think about Joseph. Right? Notice Joseph's struggles. He's betrayed by his family. He suffers under ungodly leadership. He's persecuted and wrongly tried, and then he becomes a king. And instead of becoming bitter and hating his family, he later saves them. Sound familiar? Jesus is the better Joseph. He was rejected by his family, rejected by leaders, rejected by kings, wrongly tried and imprisoned, beaten and crucified, raised again to new life and sits at the right hand of God the Father, ruling and reigning as king. And instead of holding it against us, he rescues us. He saves his people. 
Think about Moses, the great liberator, right? As God's people are enslaved to the labor of the Egyptians. Moses came into Egypt, performed signs, wonders, led Egypt out of slavery, and then is rejected as he liberates God's people. Jesus is the better Moses. As Jesus came, liberates us from sin and death, leads us to freedom in Christ and finding our hope and adoption in God's family. See, the courage of Stephen to stare down these wolves who are accusing and attempting to discredit his ministry, Stephen sits back and says, look, I know the word of God, and I know it testifies to Jesus, and I know Jesus is better than anything you have to offer me. I saw God's faithfulness to our people over and over and over again in the, New, in the Old Testament, and I see its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Jesus, the better Abraham. Jesus, the better ark of Noah, who hides and protects in the midst of judgment. Jesus, the better Joseph, who suffers and rescues in our place. Jesus, the better Moses, who liberates his people from slavery to sin and death. Jesus, the better David, who rules and fights on our behalf as a warrior king. Jesus, the better Job, who suffers unjustly for our sake. Right, every story in Scripture points back to him. And Stephen knows his king. And his identity rests in his king. And a profound courage wells up inside of him to serve Jesus even in the midst of opposition and persecution. Now you might be sitting there because I think, I think this is interesting, right? As you think about like, well, wait a minute, how can finding my identity and trust in Jesus help me to stand in the face of persecution when persecution is right there in front of me? Right? And I think that's a completely fair question to ask, right? So let me give you, let me give you an example of... Um, of something that I think might help you process through this, right? Because really, in reality, here's what, when we're sitting there and Stephen's sitting there in the midst of opposition and persecution, he's, he's at a crossroads, right? And, he, and he's asking himself in that situation, right, is God better? Is Jesus better? Is Jesus worthy? Then whatever false acceptance Life, whatever is being offered on this side, is Jesus better? And one of the things that frequently comes to mind is I've been in ministry uh, long enough now to have seen adultery inside a marriage happen a few times. And it's, it's terrible every time. Every situation's differently, but sadly, I've seen it a few times. And in a lot of those cases, God was merciful enough to, the, to that husband and wife to rescue and redeem that marriage. It's, it's a beautiful story that only Jesus can do. But one of the things that's been interesting to me is like the longer I've been married to Jackie, the less I understand adultery in the first place. And again, I'm not saying I'm above these sins. I'm not saying that it could never happen. But I honestly, just to be perfectly honest with you, after 10 years of marriage, I just don't really get it. Like when I loved my wife in the early days, I loved this idea of her. 
right, of, of who she was, who she, who she was becoming, the way she loved me. But over the course of the last 10 years, guess what, guess what Jackie and I have walked through? We've walked through high seasons, like seeing the birth of our children, uh, seeing this church started, moving across states, uh, living on practically no money at all when we were down in Tampa, right? We, we, we've seen God do some, and then we've been in the valley at times, right? Our son being hospitalized, Jackie nearly stroking out in the emergency room here in Gainesville, right? Medical complications from pregnancies, right? We, we've been through a lot, and here's the one thing that, that has happened in my own heart over, the time, over time in, in, in being married to Jackie, right? That idea of love that we were confessing to one another on our marriage day has become a felt reality. And you know what adultery is? It's counterfeit love. It's the promise of a cheap thrill and love for a few minutes in place of the reality of the true hard work but the deeper love that comes with abiding in your marriage covenant vows. And the longer I've been married to Jackie and the longer that that marriage has grown, the less attractive the counterfeit idol becomes. And I'm just not interested in it. It's like, I... Like, no offense, but, you know, so ladies, can't make a pass at me. Sorry. <laughs> Some of you guys are like, really, dude? You really think that's going to happen? But I'm not interested. Because the, rea- the reality is this. Jesus is better than any of the counterfeits the world's going to offer you. And if you are abiding in him and find your identity in Christ, the longer you walk with him, you will have a felt courage the way that Stephen does for his king. He knows his king. He loves his king. He's seen his king's faithfulness time and time and time again. So the question you can ask yourself is, where where am I drawing my identity from? Is my identity being drawn in who I am or what others say about me and what others think of me and who I'm portraying to the world around me? Or is my identity rooted in the fact that I am a son or daughter of the Most High God and King? I can promise you this. Identity in Christ is better than anything this world can throw at you. It's not always easy, but it's better. And if you can find your identity resting in the kind of hope that only Jesus offers, you will see a courage well up in you that you didn't know you had and Stephen probably didn't know he had either. You'll see a courage in the faithfulness of God even in the midst of persecution. And here's the third thing I want you to see. Stephen finds his courage in God's word. He finds his courage in his identity in Christ. And the last thing he does, as he stands in judgment before these men, is he's courageous in who his final judge ultimately is. Like, like, I was asking myself this week as I was reading through this passage and preparing this message, like, why do I struggle to be courageous sometimes? Like, what... What causes me to shrink back in fear at times from sharing the gospel with somebody? 
And if I'm honest, most of the times it's fear of judgment and what that person's going to pronounce as judgment over me, what they think of me. Kevin's stupid. Kevin's unkind. Kevin's wicked. Whatever it may be, I fear the judgment that that person is going to pronounce over me. What if we understood judgment truly and properly? All right, look at what Stephen says here in verses 51 through 60. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. By the way, unless you like really have like a lot of courage, maybe wouldn't recommend coming at somebody like with that necessarily. Go for it. Just be ready for the response that's going to elicit. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. He's referring to Jesus whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and then did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Remember that guy. We're going to see him later. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Think about this. He's standing in front of a group of men who are about to stone and murder him. And he has this moment of clarity that Luke shares with us. He sees the heaven open up. And he sees his ultimate judge, Jesus, at the right hand of God, the Father, standing before him. And as he looks at his true judge, he rests in God's pronouncement over him that he is not guilty because he is in Christ. Even though he has a death sentence staring him in the face, He looks to his ultimate judge, Jesus. He says, I have watched our people reject God's work time after time, and I am confident that you all are doing so again. And so instead, I'm going to look to the final judgment in Jesus. That's courage. You know, I've been in ministry long enough now, and I've been walking with Jesus for about 16 years, and I love, I love people who, like, over the years have, like, pressed me on my worldview as I've been sharing the gospel with them, and I hear all sorts of objections, but this one's one of my favorites. A, a couple years ago, I was talking to some lady on the campus here, and at, at first, I thought we were having a wonderfully pleasant conversation about God and worldviews and Jesus, and then all of a sudden, like this like flicker of rage just like lit in her eyes. You could just see it. I'm like, man, she's going to come after me. Buckle up. And she looks at me and goes, you know what's wicked 
for you to say that Jesus would be the only way one could experience and know God. That's so wicked. Do you realize how evil you are to say something like that? I was like, whew, all right, wow. Was not expecting to be called the devil today. And as I was sitting there thinking, I was just like, God, I don't, I don't know what to say to this girl. Like, I don't know what to do. And I, I looked at her and I was just like, you know what? Is it wicked though? It's only wicked if it isn't true. If it's true, it's wicked not to share about Jesus with you. Stephen knows this, and he presses on in the midst of opposition because he knows it to be true. The courage in the midst of persecution to even stare down death, I can't even imagine. Now, I would imagine if you're like me, you might be sitting here and you're looking at this story and you're thinking, I'm not bold enough to do that. I don't know enough to do that. I can't, I can't imagine doing anything like that. And I, 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 I want to get there one day, but I'm, you know, I'm working slowly towards being more courageous. I get it. But I want to press back a little bit and just I want you to think about something. Acts 1.8. Right? Think about what Jesus says there. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. There's no clause for time there. There's no clause for needing to grow. There's no possibility that it might not exist. No, he says, you will be my witnesses. Guys, Stephen is no different than any single one of us in this room this morning. He's not. He is unique. He's made in the image and likeness of God, just like you, just like me. He's empowered, if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, he's empowered with the same Holy Spirit that you and I are indwelt with as followers of Jesus Christ. And we as a church body can be courageous because of the scriptures and their testimony to Jesus. We can be courageous because our identity is in the risen king who overcame death and the grave. And we can be courageous because God has the final say in Jesus Christ. I've read the end of the book, guys. I know what happens. I don't know when it's going to happen, but I know what's going to happen. Jesus wins. He's king of kings. He is Lord of lords. He is savior of saviors. He is the Prince of Peace testified about in the Old Testament. He's the suffering servant that Isaiah talked about. He's the Son of Man that, David mentioned, that Daniel mentioned. He's the Good Shepherd who looks after his flock. He's the way and the truth and the life, and there is no other way to the Father except through him. He is the true vine that we can abide in. He's the light of the world given to us by the Father. We need not lack courage 
because Jesus is our rock of salvation upon which the church was built and not even the gates of hell can prevail against it. Guys, what would it look like if we as the church rested in that type of confidence? Guys, the gospel has brought kingdoms to its knees. And we are no different than the early church. So I want to invite the band back up and I want to give us a time to respond to this. Because the question is, is are we living this way? And if we, if we aren't, why not? I would venture to say that's probably pretty safe to say that we likely are not living this courageously. Probably, probably a fair assumption. At least not as much as we may like. Here's the good news. As I see the testimony in Scripture of our church fathers and the apostles and the disciples, guess what they did time and time again? They failed. As I read about the prophets and God's people in the Old Testament, guess what I see in them over and over again? They fail. And as I read that and I see that, guess, who, guess what else I see? God is faithful on the other side. God is faithful to forgive. God is faithful to redeem. God is faithful to restore. And then God is faithful to empower. So here's what I would invite you to do this morning. Before you come up and take communion, we take communion here every week at Aletheia, right? If you're a follower of Jesus, I would ask that you just do this for me first. That there's anything that you need to take before God and repent of, sin that you need to take before God and say, God, I, you know, I haven't been living for you. I've been trusting in this idol. I've been trusting in this thing to rescue me this week. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's your education. Maybe it's a job. Maybe it's your family. I don't, I don't know what it is. I have all sorts of idols myself. Will you confess that? Will you tell God, God, I've run after these things for approval and love and for satisfaction and for hope and peace the same way that Israel ran after a golden calf and it's failed me. Will you forgive me? And then here's what I know. He is faithful to forgive. And I want you to come up and I want you to take communion. And communion is a time to worship. I remember growing up in the church, I thought communion was some solemn act. And, it, and it, it is personal and it is to be taken seriously. But I thought it was some solemn act where I was asking God to forgive me and that I needed to pay him back in some way, shape, or form because I didn't understand the gospel. When you come up and take communion, here's what you're doing. You're saying, God, I've transgressed from your standard. I can't please you, but Jesus did for me. His flesh and his blood were poured out for me so that I might be forgiven. And every sin, past, present, and future has been bought for by the blood of Christ. And then you raised him from the dead on the third day so that he might rule and reign and offer us new life. And you can take communion this morning as an act of worship because it is finished.
you have been been bought by the blood of your Savior and King, Jesus Christ. And as you take communion, head back to your seat and ask God to give you courage in his word, to give you courage in your identity that can only be found in Jesus. Then ask him to give you courage to know that he is the final arbitrator and judge in all matters so that you might witness faithfully to him. And guys, let me tell you this, if we start doing this, be ready. It's gonna get real uncomfortable really quick. But we will see people start coming to know Jesus and we will see God do amazing things in our midst and that is better than anything this world has to offer. God, we want to see what you're going to do. Holy Spirit, will you well up courage inside of us that witnesses to the glory of Jesus Christ because he is worthy. Father, forgive us for falling short of your standard and thank you for your son who gave it all for us. The better Abraham, the better Joseph, the better Moses. Father, use us to witness to your glory so that we might in our lifetime see a greater worship of you. 